Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Good morning, everybody. Well, my name is Blake Godsey. I serve as the family pastor here at Solid Rock. Very excited to be with you this morning. Um, I did want to let you know about a couple of things here. First, we did have a baptism at our 930 service, so just wanted to let you know so you could also be celebrating that we had uh, someone who uh, professed their faith in Jesus today, a young lady named Emily Hale. Um, and then I also wanted to let you know if you have uh, are a student or have a student in student ministry, I wanted to let you know for the next few Sundays we are going to be having family worship for our student ministry. So we are not going to be having our normal 11 o'clock student service, um, and we are going to restart that on August 13th. So we are taking a little bit of time to reformat that, and uh, just also a time for students to come and join us in the service, which they're welcome to do. And so the 13th is going to be our promotion Sunday. That's when people's uh, grades elevate to the next one. Um, so that's when we're going to start back with our 11 o'clock, and it will still just be at the 11 o'clock uh, for our student ministry. So I want to make you aware of that. Uh, and today we're also going to be continuing in our Suffering Saints series. So we've been talking about uh, stories from Scripture of people who have gone through significant suffering and how we can learn from God's Word and how they suffered well through those difficult things. So um, in, in that same vein, I wanted to bring up a, a wonderful cultural piece uh, you may be familiar with, a movie called Dodgeball. Um, you're probably wondering how that's going to connect. Don't worry, we'll get there. All right, so in the movie Dodgeball, not necessarily a film I'm going to endorse for you today, but basically you've got this group of people who are entering a dodgeball tournament, and they need to be trained up to do well in the tournament. So they hire a coach. His name is Patches O'Houlihan. And Patches has some wonderful things that he teaches the team. One of them, he teaches them the five D's of dodgeball, which are dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Very good. I heard some people in the audience repeating them. Very good. I'm glad you're familiar. And then he also teaches them this wonderful truth that if you can dodge a wrench, then you can dodge a ball. So part of their training involves him tossing wrenches at them, of course, to disastrous effect when you get hit with a wrench, right? Now, I'm not going to spoil the ending for you. It's, they win. It's not, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Sorry. Maybe some of you are mad at me now. But what happens is, yeah, they get pretty good at dodging dodgeballs, but in the interim, they got hit with a bunch of wrenches, right? And sometimes our spiritual life can be like that. We know that going through difficult things ultimately strengthens our faith, but we get hit with wrenches on the way, right? We pick up some wounds. We pick up some hurts. And we suffer because of that. So today we are going to be talking about the story of Joseph. Joseph from the Old Testament, from Genesis, not the husband of Mary. But we're going to be talking about how in his story, he was harmed by others. That his suffering came at the hands of others. And we're going to see how and why we can endure, how we can trust God in the midst of those things when they're happening in our lives. When we're suffering because of the actions of others, when people harm us, when they lie about us, or when they ignore us or forget about us. So we're going to be in Genesis today. It's kind of the last uh, major story of the book of Genesis, um, and this is in the era of the patriarchs. So Jacob is the father of all of these guys, and he's hanging around. He's got his sons, um, and they will become the namesakes of the tribes of Israel going forward. So that's kind of where we're at today. We're going to be in the book of Genesis starting in chapter 37. Verse 2 through 4, it says this. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. So if you are here today and you knew anything about Joseph, you knew that he had a coat of many colors, right? Probably drew one at some point, colored one. Well, I have some bad news, but then I have good news. The bad news is the coat of many colors is really not like the, really the most important thing that happens to Joseph. So there's a, if that's all you know about Joseph, unfortunately, there's been some good information that you have missed out on. It's really more like the prologue to his story. But the good news is we're going to talk about the really important things that happened to Joseph today, and we're going to talk about how that affects our lives. I also just wanted to give you a short kind of uh, just acclimate you to this family situation. It's messy, okay? So you've got Jacob, and in Jacob's story, he wanted to marry uh, the girl he loved whose name was Rachel. But Rachel's dad, Rachel was the younger daughter. He wanted Jacob to marry his older daughter, Leah, so he tricked him into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. Well, Jacob was undeterred, and he kept working until Rachel's father also agreed to let him marry her. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was pretty common that they would have multiple wives. Doesn't mean it was God's design for his people, but it did happen fairly often. So here was the problem, though, um, among the many problems that arise from that. Leah had many children, but Rachel didn't conceive for a very long time. So when Rachel finally did conceive, her first son was Joseph. So because Rachel's the favorite wife, now Joseph becomes the favorite son. If you remember the story of Jacob, his brother, he and his brother Esau kind of dealt with a similar thing with their parents. Their parents had their favorites, and it caused strife between them. And we see here in the story of Joseph that this favoritism that's going on in this family, kind of this like generational sin that's going on, is causing strife and conflict. It says that Joseph's brothers hated him. And so Joseph's the favorite. He gets a really uh, gaudy coat to show that he's the favorite, so nobody is confused about who the favorite is. It's the one with the coat, right? And not only that, but one day he has a dream that he decides he's going to share with his brothers. Hey, I had this dream, and it means that one day you're all going to bow down and serve me. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, they, they didn't really like that so much. Uh, in addition, it appears that uh, Joseph, when he goes out into the field with them, he like, goes back and tells his dad if they were working hard or not. So Joseph's not really doing a great job of warming himself up to the brothers, right? He's kind of, he's kind of really flaunting the fact that he's the favorite. And so his brothers decide they're going to take action in one of the most truly horrible ways that somebody treats a family member in all of Scripture. Let's pick it back up in Genesis 37 verses 23 through 28. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So out of jealousy, they consider killing Joseph, and they end up selling their own brother into 
slavery. And Judah, the one who suggests this, acts like they're doing him some kind of mercy. Like, hey, let's not be mean and kill him. Let's just sell him. He thinks that in some way they're being kind to Joseph. And so then what the brothers do is they aren't going to, of course, tell Jacob that they've sold his favorite son. They get his coat and they dip it in the blood of a goat and they make up the story that he was killed by wild animals. And so Jacob hears this. He's distraught to lose his son and Joseph now is sold into slavery and on his way to Egypt. So this part of Joseph's story is a sobering example of the truth that sometimes we suffer because others do us harm. And as I say that, there may be people or places or incidents that are popping up in your mind, things maybe you'd really rather not think about, ways that people have harmed you. And sometimes people harm us unintentionally. They don't maybe intend for something to uh, hurt us the way it does, but it does. But then we also have to grapple with the fact that we hurt one another intentionally sometimes too. We receive hurt and then oftentimes we give hurt. It's a reality that people hurt us. One of the hurts that came up for me as I was thinking through this sermon early on in my ministry when I was at a different church just out of college, um, had some supervisors in that setting that I really looked up to but um, just felt very discouraged by. Um, some of the things they said to me kind of called me to question like whether or not I should even be in ministry. Maybe I had missed the boat. Maybe I had misdiagnosed uh, what God was calling me to do. And I'll be honest with you, some of that still sticks in me even now. Even some of the things that I remember them saying stick with me even now, even though I've been in ministry for years now. But sometimes that's how it is people hurt us. I don't think most of their hurt was intentional. But at the same time, it, it creates something in us when we're hurt by others. It creates something. Sometimes uh, that suffering may play out. Maybe we have physical wounds from a way that somebody's harmed us. Maybe we suffer from a lot of fear and anxiety as a result of our suffering. Maybe we find ourselves incredibly angry about what happened. We can't seem to get past it. We feel sad, feel maybe depressed. Maybe we feel guilt and shame thinking somehow when someone harmed us, it was our fault or we deserved it. Or maybe all of those things describe an experience that you've had or are having. And not only do we experience these things, sometimes that hurt starts to become a part of us, and sometimes we even hurt others out of that hurt, right? So we're going to talk throughout this story how God shows up for Joseph. That's going to be one of the major themes, is that God shows up for Joseph. But that doesn't mean that what happened to him was right, that what his brothers did was right, and the same is true for you today. God is showing up for you in the midst of your suffering. That doesn't mean what happened is right. That doesn't mean it should have happened to you. So after being sold by his brothers, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And this is what happens. Genesis 39, verses 1 through 5. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. 
So Joseph is bought by this guy. His name is Potiphar. He's a captain of the guard. He's an Egyptian. From the very beginning, we see God is with Joseph. God provides his presence. Additionally, God gives Joseph incredible success in what he's doing, so much so that he ends up in charge of this guy's house. Remember, he's somebody who's been sold as a servant or a slave, and now he's in charge of a household. And Potiphar, the guy who was his master, saw that whatever this guy does, God is with him. I don't know what this is about. I don't know what God he serves, but I know that anytime this guy Joseph is involved, things go well. So for that reason, Potiphar was like, well, I want to keep taking good care of this. He's hoping by transitive property that God's going to take care of him if he takes care of Joseph, because God is clearly with Joseph. So even in this unfair circumstance, Joseph makes the most of it. God blesses him. And even if he hadn't caused everything that Joseph did to be wonderful, he had God's presence with him. God was with Joseph. That's the big portion. And then graciously, he continued to also give him favor with those around him. But unfortunately, Joseph also caught some of the wrong attention. Verse 11, well, one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she, that's Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So we see in the preceding verses that Potiphar's wife has made advances toward Joseph. And in this instance, she gets particularly aggressive, and he runs. He doesn't want anything bad to happen, so he just runs. But unfortunately, his garment's left behind. So now, Joseph's no longer there to give his version of events, there's evidence of what is happening, and Potiphar's wife chooses to lie, that he was the one who did this. He did this so he could shame me. He wanted to shame all of Egypt. That's why he did what he did. And look, I have the proof. So what's Potiphar going to do? He's not going to disbelieve his wife, right? It's The true story is really not a very good story for Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. So he takes this story, he takes this lie that was told about Joseph, and he throws Joseph in prison. Based on a lie, even though he'd done nothing wrong, he's thrown into prison. Now he is enslaved in a foreign land, and now he's in prison because of something he didn't do, because of the way people had acted toward him. And this is the second way that Joseph suffered that we can also see in our own story. Sometimes we suffer because people lie about us, or they slander us, or because they want to gossip about us. Sometimes we experience harm in that way. Sometimes people say things that harm us, right? Sometimes we also experience suffering when we know that people have said something about us. I don't know about you, but finding out that somebody has said something hurtful about me to someone else, sometimes that hurts more than if they just said it right to me, right? That kind of suffering is what Joseph was doing. Somebody was talking badly about him. And can we also just come to an agreement to today that the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, that that's not really, that doesn't really hold up to life, right? Sticks can hurt you, stones can hurt you, words can hurt you. They can all hurt us. That is how it is. And I know that for you, you're probably thinking of times when somebody has hurt you with their words. 
And I'll be honest, thinking through this portion of the sermon has brought a lot of conviction to me, reminding me of times when I hurt others with my words. A sobering reminder. I'm very grateful that God is gracious in those times, but still remembering, man, I've used my words to hurt others in these same ways. But maybe you have suffered because somebody lied and said you did something you didn't do and you suffered consequences for it. Or maybe someone formed an opinion of you based on a small interaction and they made a judgment of your character. Just made a snap judgment treat you that way because of that small interaction you had. Or maybe someone has taken a difficult situation in your life, something you feel very guilty about, very ashamed of, and maybe they use that to gossip about you to get some interest from somebody else who would like to hear a story, right? And as these moments start to pop up in your mind, we can acknowledge that this hurt causes us to suffer. This hurt leads to suffering. And for Joseph, this kind of action led to him being imprisoned. Again, he's in a foreign land against his will, and now he's been imprisoned. It's only getting worse. So what does God do when Joseph is in the midst of this? Chapter 39, verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph is falsely in prison. God is with him. God is present with him. He shows him steadfast love. This isn't a, like, oh, I kind of like you, I love you. This is a covenant-level type love that God is showing to Joseph. And church, that is sufficient. For us to know we have the presence of God, that we have the love of God, that is enough. That's more than enough. But God is exceedingly gracious and continues to show Joseph favor in everything that he does. He's a prisoner and he gets put in charge of the prison. That's how trustworthy he is. That's how obvious it is to those around him that God is with him. It says that the warden, he didn't even pay attention if Joseph was in charge of something because he knew it was going to get done. God continued to graciously not only provide his presence but also continued to give Joseph favor. And then while he's in prison, something else happens. Joseph encounters two other prisoners who are having dreams. Remember, back at the beginning of the story, Joseph had dreams, right? It's going to be a thread that's kind of woven throughout his story. So basically, I'll summarize what happens. God gives Joseph the wisdom to interpret these dreams. So there's two guys that he meets down there. One is the former chief cupbearer to Pharaoh, and the other is his former chief baker. So the cupbearer approaches Joseph. He says, hey, I've been having this dream. And Joseph tells him, I hear you. You're actually going to be restored. You're going to be restored to your position as cupbearer. Well, the chief baker overheard that, and he said, I kind of like that interpretation. Let's, let's see. I'll give him a crack in my dream, too. Chief baker says, hey, here's my dream. And Joseph tells him, unfortunately, your dream means you're going to be executed. So what happens? Joseph asks the cupbearer, when you are restored, remember me. Please remember that I'm in this prison unjustly. Please say something to Pharaoh when you get back there. So let's see how it plays out. Genesis 40, verses 20 through 23. 
On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Everything happened just like Joseph said it would. The cupbearer is restored, and the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. We're going to see that he forgot about him for two years. Two years are going to go by. That's a long time to suffer. We don't know exactly how long he would have been in the prison. We know he was 17 at the beginning of the story. At the end of these two years, he's going to be 30, so a period of about 13 years. We don't know exactly how long he was in Potiphar's house, but likely he was in this prison for several years, and then additionally, because the cupbearer forgot him, he's going to be there for two more years. That's a long time. That's a long time to suffer. What happened to Joseph here reminds me of a third way that sometimes we suffer at the hands of others. Sometimes we are ignored. Sometimes we're forgotten or we're unseen by others. Part of Joseph's lengthened time in prison was that he was forgotten, that he was ignored, that in the joy of being restored to his position, the cupbearer ignored him, forgot about him. And we can experience hurt and suffering through this as well. Maybe at school or at work you feel isolated because people don't understand you or they don't quite connect with you maybe in your family you're not feeling like you're being engaged or maybe you feel like you're not being appreciated in your family or maybe your schedule has you feeling isolated and in major need of community but you just feel like an outsider how can I break in to make meaningful connections with people and all these situations and others like them cause us hurt and suffering because we're meant to live in meaningful relationship with God he's also created us to live in meaningful relationship with one another That's how he has created us. And I just want you to know, if you're here today, you're listening, you hear somehow, anyone, you are worth seeing. You are worth being known. You are worth being understood. You are worth it. And eventually things do come around for Joseph because of yet another dream. This time it is Pharaoh who is having dreams. And this finally reminds the cupbearer, Joseph. He tells Pharaoh they can't find anyone to interpret these dreams. He says, I knew this Hebrew prisoner. When I was in prison, he interpreted my dream and everything happened just like he said it would. So Pharaoh brings Joseph in. They get him all cleaned up and he goes to hear the dream. And I'll kind of summarize what it's about. Pharaoh basically has two dreams that mean the same thing. And it means there's basically the situation Joseph interprets it. He says, Egypt is going to have a bountiful harvest for seven years, more than enough, more than you could possibly need. But that's going to be followed by seven years of severe famine. He said, so what you need to do, Pharaoh, is you need to select somebody wise and discerning and put them over all the agriculture of Egypt so that during the plentiful years we can store up grain so then when the famine comes that we'll have enough. And Pharaoh liked what he heard. In chapter 41, verses 37 through 41, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. 
You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Joseph, this man who'd been sold into slavery, unjustly imprisoned, forgotten about, is now in charge of the entire nation of Egypt. Pharaoh's got the title, but everything that God is going to do from this point on, he's going to do through Joseph. And just like he's done everywhere else, God blesses the work of Joseph's hand. They carry out the plans to store the food. It goes so well that eventually they stop measuring how much they have saved because they know they have so much. They measured it for a while to make sure they'd have enough. They got past that. They just stopped counting because it had been so bountiful, this harvest that came, and they were able to manage it so well. And as if this story wasn't interesting enough, so they not only had enough grain for the nation of Egypt, they also had enough that they were able to sell it to people from other nations who were experiencing the famine. And this group from Canaan shows up, Joseph's brothers. So they get there. Joseph immediately recognizes who they are. They don't recognize him. Why would they? Why would they expect to see Joseph there, right? He's grown. He's been living in a different place. He's wearing different clothes. Why would they have reason to recognize him, right? So Joseph acts like they're spies. He acts like he's worried that they're spies because he wants to ask them questions. He wants to find out information. He wants to find out how his father's doing. He wants to find out how the family's doing. So he's asking all these questions. He finds out he has a younger brother that he's never met. And so what he does is he tells them, well, I'm going to need to prove that your story is true. So you're going to have to go back and get the younger brother and bring him here uh, I'm going to send you with grain and all this, uh, but then you're going to have to also leave one of the brothers here as like a security deposit, so I know you're going to come back. Okay, so he sends them with grain. They leave the brother Simeon, who drew the short straw, I guess, and he had to stay back in Egypt, and they all went back to their father Jacob and said, this overseer took a great interest in our family. I don't know really what his deal is, but he said we need to bring Benjamin back so that we can get Simeon back and we can have this grain but it takes a while for Jacob to agree. Guess who the new favorite son is now? It's his brother, Benjamin. Joseph's younger brother, he's the favorite now. He says, I've already lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin, I'll die. I can't handle it. So he, it basically takes until the famine becomes very severe before Jacob finally agrees. The brothers say, we will absolutely keep him safe. We will take care of him. Do not worry at all. We are going to take care of him. So they finally go back, they bring extra gifts, they bring extra money, they're looking to do anything to get in the good favor of this overseer who, again, has taken a very strange interest in their family, right? So when they get there, Joseph receives them and he gives them a feast. And he sees his younger brother for the first time. He has to excuse himself so he can like go to his room and go cry because he's so excited. Joseph's a big crier, it's gonna come up multiple times in the story. I love that about Joseph, he's a crier. Um, so Joseph gives them this feast, weeps for a while. Eventually, he sends them back with the grain. But he plants his own cup in the sack of Benjamin. He tells his guards, hey, go chase them down. I think they might have taken something. Sure enough, they open the sack, and there is Joseph's cup in Benjamin's sack. Joseph says, I guess I'm going to have to keep him here as a servant. But then Judah the same brother who suggested we should sell Joseph into slavery, 
he says, no, don't take Benjamin. My dad can't handle it. Take me instead. At this point, Joseph, he loses it. He's going to start crying again. So he sends out all the Egyptians around him because he doesn't want the Egyptians to know how he's related to this group. He sends out all the Egyptians, and then he reveals who he is to his brothers in chapter 45, verses 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph forgives his brothers. He recognizes that God was the one using all of these horrible things that happened to him for the good of his family. He says three times, God God sent me here. This isn't an excuse of his brother's actions, but rather a recognition that even in the midst of these horrible actions that were taken against him, that God had a purpose, that God was using these events to bring about a great result. So then he tells them, go and get my father. Go bring the family here. He gets to meet his brother for the first time. They hug, and yes, you got it. They cry. They hold each other, and they cry because they're so overjoyed. They bring the family to Egypt. They're given some of the best land because of the favor that Joseph is shown that for what he has meant to the nation of Egypt, they give his family this land. Jacob gets to reunite with Joseph. Jacob gets to meet his grandkids. And God provided for the children of Abraham. Remember, this is God's covenant people. He promised Abraham, your descendants are going to be as the sand on the seashore, the stars of the sky. They may not have survived the famine if they were doing it on their own, but God preserved them. And eventually, of course, and here's the thing too, this is a long story, right? And it starts in 37 and goes through 50. If you get time this week, go read this whole story. Like I'm skipping over large chunks because we, you know, we've only got so much time. But I'd encourage you, go read this story. It is incredibly rich. There's just so much that God is doing, so many things to attach to. But eventually, as we get now to kind of the end of the story, Jacob dies. And now Joseph's brothers are afraid that now that Jacob is dead, that their kindness has probably run out, that it's time for Joseph to take vengeance. Maybe he'd been kind for the sake of their father, and that it's time now Joseph is going to take his revenge. Let's see how it plays out in Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Maybe the brothers still feel guilty. Who know, maybe they didn't fully reconcile. Maybe there's still a little tension between them all. But they basically come back and say, Dad told us to tell you to forgive us. That's what he said right before he died. He said, please forgive your brothers, right? And then they fall down before him, call him Lord. You remember his dream from the very beginning when they all fell before him. He said they would serve him. Joseph's changed, though. Joseph's not the same as he was when he was a kid. He's changed. Joseph says, there's no reason to fear. I know what you did was evil, but God used it for good. He knows that. He forgives them. On top of that, he promises to take care of them. And the truth illustrated here is one of the most crucial hopes that we have when we're going through suffering, that God takes the suffering that we go through, that the sin that is done against us, and he turns it for good. God doesn't cause us to suffer. The existence of sin in the world causes our suffering. But even though there is suffering caused by the brokenness of the world in general, the brokenness of others, the brokenness that exists in our own hearts, God works all of it together for our good. We see the same sentiment in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I have to remind us that God's idea of good is often different than our idea of good, right? Good to us means easy. Good to us means painless. That's actually not the greatest good in the world. God's good is for us to grow to be more like Jesus, to love and to trust him more, to understand the brokenness of sin more, and to rely on him as our savior more. And when we're suffering, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. But it absolutely is. The greatest thing that can happen to us in this life is for us to grow closer in our relationship with Jesus. That's the greatest thing that can happen to us. Suffering brings that about like nothing else in our lives. Again, if we chose good for ourselves, we'd live easy lives, and we would be easily distracted from pursuing Christ. Suffering brings us to the point where we recognize who we are and who God is. So what are some of our takeaways from the story of Joseph? The first thing is we do suffer at the hands of others, and it's okay for us to be honest about it. We don't have to pretend that everything's perfect and that the world is rosy. We can admit that others have hurt us. Sometimes being able to admit that opens up a whole road toward healing. We also have to recognize that we've been the ones who have hurt others as well. Second, something we see from Joseph's story, sometimes our suffering goes on a long time, a really long time. Remember, about 13 years was this whole story before Joseph is raised to the position that he was in Egypt. That's not even to say that he didn't still suffer after he was raised to this position. Yeah, he's the number one person in the land. That doesn't mean that he doesn't miss his family. Right? Our suffering can go on a long time. Third, God is with us in that suffering. This is another thing we can't underestimate about who God is. To know that God is with us, to know he sees us, to know that he knows us, to know that when Jesus was on earth, he experienced what we did. All the things that we've talked about, Jesus experienced them himself. 
God is with us in that. It's not foreign to him. You are seen in that. He knows, and he's with us. And the fourth thing is God is going to use these things for good, for us to know him more, for us to trust him more, to more fully know him as our Savior. Now, if you're here this morning and you're going through suffering, you are wondering what it's like to experience the presence of God, the nearness of God. You're wondering who this Savior is. Or maybe you are a believer in Jesus, you've placed your faith in him as your Savior, but you'd like to take the step of baptism, a step of obedience to declare that faith like we had someone do this morning. Or maybe you just need some prayer in the midst of your suffering. As we're going through this series, I feel like it's a great time for us to be reminded the power of prayer, the power of asking someone, could you, on my behalf, go before the Lord? That he would know us through our prayers, that we could make ourselves known. He knows what's going on, but for us to submit ourselves before him, before others, to let others into what's going on, to have them also pray to the Lord, one of the greatest things we can do when we're suffering is to pray and to have others pray for us. If any of those have struck a chord with you, we're going to have prayer partners down here at the front. Our elders will be out in the commons. We would love to be with you in that, wherever you're at today. So as we close, I'd just like to ask a a couple questions, give us a couple of opportunities to reflect on what God is stirring up in you through this story. The first thing, when have you suffered at the hands of others? What are the things that kind of pop up in your mind as we've talked through this story? And what was it like to be in that place? What kind of emotions did you feel? What kind of hurts do you still feel from that? Second, have you ever felt lonely in your suffering? And what would it feel like to know that you are seen and understood in it? What would it like to be known by someone else, to know that you are seen by God? And third, how can your understanding of God's character affect the way you endure suffering? knowing that he's with us, knowing that he's turning this suffering for our good. Those help give us endurance. We're promised that endurance increases our faith and it gives us a stronger faith. God grows us through the suffering. So how can that understanding affect the way that we feel when we're in the midst of suffering? Let's pray together. God, we're here before you today as people who have endured suffering. At times, Lord, we know that we have been the cause of suffering for someone else. God, we lay that before you. We confess that. God, we see in the story of Joseph all the things he went through, and they stick out to us, and we connect to that. But God, we also see who you are in the midst of that story. We see your presence. We see your steadfast love. We see how you use these horrible things. How you are so amazing, you turn even the evil for good. God, we pray for an endurance and a steadfastness like Joseph. And when we're in the midst of suffering, that we would continue to choose to pursue you, to trust you, to endure well. And God, we confess today, too, that we cannot get rid of our suffering, we cannot get rid of our hurts, but that because of what Jesus has done, because of his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, 
that those hurts, we can give them over to you. That we can look forward to a day when you will make all things right, where all hurt will be taken away. No more tears, except tears of joy. God, give us the endurance to trust you in those moments. Help us to see who you are, who we are. And Lord, we know that the more we see who you are, the more we will come to know that you are God, that you are our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name.